the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the sky ships are descending, bringing with them jovial marauders with a penchant for yodeling. The only thing sharper than their tunes are their blades. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. I'm Jonathan Graubert. And I'm Allie Heilman. And we, we are, are the, the Bain, Bain Summer Interns. interns. We, we have, have become, become of one mind, one voice, one thought. Won't, won't you join us? Tony still resists, but it won't be long now. Not long at all. This week, we have the unparalleled Tim Powers, winner of countless awards and author of On Stranger Tides, on the podcast to talk about his book, Expiration Date. Set in Los Angeles, it features a boy in possession of Thomas Edison's ghost on the run from ghost junkies who will drain him dry and kill him in the process. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Leadian Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. Now, here's the news. In anticipation of the 4th of July, we have new releases for you. Perfect for when your hot dog starts speaking in ancient Aramaic. First off, we have Monster Hunter Memoir Saints by Larry Correa and John Ringo. Chad Gardner had once taken down a werewolf while wearing only jogging gear. With half a dozen or more loop guru appearing every full moon, mysterious shadow demons, Houdon necromancers, 50-foot bipedal crocodiles showing up every couple of months, and more vampires in a goth concert, New Orleans in the 80s gives a whole new perspective to the term, hell on earth. In fact, more monsters are popping up than crawfish at a fey dodo. Chad may be able to collect enormous bounties for the monster he kills. But there's one catch. He has to stay alive to do it. And the Tide of Battle anthology of short stories by Michael Z. Williamson is a perfect excuse to avoid all summer barbecues. After a brutal car crash, a disabled young man beats all odds to pursue his dream of crewing the first starship. Outnumbered and outgunned, a freehold warship must use guile, expert maneuvering, and sheer courage to survive a pursuing UN fleet. Meanwhile, other freeholders resort to terrifying psyops to destroy their invaders' morale. A family learns that their patriarch isn't as crazy as they thought when a zombie uprising actually happens. A young girl must use her knowledge of elementals and spirit beings to protect a king who is unaware of the threats against him. In an alternate Bronze Age, the descendants of dinosaurs fight with sentient felinoids for territory and survival. Humans reduced to cowering in caves find a most unlikely weapon against their alien invaders. Monster Hunter Memoirs Saints by Larry Correa and John Ringo and the Tide of Battle anthology of short stories by Michael Z. Williamson are both out right now at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Tim Powers to the podcast. Hey, Tim. How are you doing, Tony? Glad to be here. 
Well, Tim Powers won the World Fantasy Award twice for his critically acclaimed novels Last Call and Declare. Declare also received the International Horror Guild Award. His novel on Stranger Tides was sold to Disney for the movie franchise installment Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. His book The Anubis Gates won the Philip K. Dick Award and is considered a modern science fiction classic by me and many others and a progenitor of the steampunk genre. Tim won the Dick Award again for straight science fiction post-apocalypse novel Dinner at Deviant's Palace. And Tim grew up in Southern California and still resides there. With Wait a minute, you didn't, did you grow up in Southern California? After age seven, I was actually born in Buffalo, New York. Right, I knew there was some Buffalo connection. All right. But you've, you've lived there most of your life, and you still reside there with your wife, Serena. And um, a number of cats and dogs. <laughs> well, out now at Booksellers is a new edition of Expiration Date by Tim Powers. This is a novel that was out before in the 1990s, but is now a trade paperback out from Bain with a, I think it's an amazing new cover by Adam Byrne. It's very good. Yeah, I like it. Um, and it's just, uh, it's, it's a beautiful presentation of, of this really great novel. Um, Tim, some of your books have been set in different times, different places, of course. Um, but you keep returning to L.A. when you really want to dig up a bunch of ghosts, it seems. Um, what is it about the Los Angeles Basin that seems to speak to the eeriest side of uh, your, your artistic sensibilities so, so often, do you think? For one thing, you have to kind of uh, look closely. Um, I always think that cities like New Orleans or San Francisco are too obviously charming. Um, with Los Angeles, you have to kind of look around in the corners, and um, there are odd things to find. There are, um, oh, in the Hollywood Hills, there are... I swear, little valleys that can only be reached by sort of secret stairways up between trees. And there's odd monasteries in those valleys. And uh, a lot of building fronts are modern, but if you walk around the side, you see it's a much older building. And if you're able to trace the original uses of it, um, half the time you get further evidence that, especially in the 1920s and 30s, L.A. was a real haven for every sort of nut cult. Um, and then, of course, more modernly, uh, there were a number of biker gangs with satanic uh, connections, not to mention the Manson crowd. Um, and people like uh, Jack Parsons, who virtually founded JPL, Jet Propulsions Laboratory, but was a devout occultist trying to uh, father a sort of new dark messiah and wound up uh, dying in a big explosion, which may or may not have been accidental. Um, really, L.A. is so full of kind of under-the-radar weirdness that uh, your task simply becomes try to connect the dots. Why do you think that is? Is it because it's just a place of, of that strange migrants are attracted to, or, or what? 
Uh, certainly that. Um, and somebody said uh, at some point the country tilted and all the loose pieces rolled to the left end. Um, and I think the movie industry has had and continues to have a big influence on it. Um, again, especially in the 20s and 30s, when it was much more wide open uh, and unregulated and everybody was making insane amounts of money, uh, partly before the IRS was founded. And um, where there's big money suddenly uh, occurring where it had not been before, not only do you get uh, people making idiotic judgments, but you get an interesting sort of predators clustering around, uh, preying on uh, naive people who suddenly have vast money. And uh, I think to this day, the movie industry is the main magnet for weirdness, not so much in the movies themselves, uh, but in the periphery, uh, where there's uh smoky dubious uh ill-defined uh business enterprises uh a lot of secrecy uh hollywood has traditionally been very good at um covering every sort of scandal and i figure well that would include scandals involving the occult um and the mysterious deaths, like the death of Thomas Ince in, I think, 1924 on William Randolph Hearst's yacht. And everybody who had been on that cruise, as, as soon as the yacht landed on an emergency basis after Ince's death, everybody took off, and every one of them denied they had been on that cruise. And uh, Hearst gave a whole bunch of money to Ince's widow, and Ince himself was immediately cremated, and there's just endless opportunities for a writer to think, what went on there really? What what actually happened there? And if you want to add, and whatever it was that happened there, let's say it involved the supernatural. That doesn't really involve uh, a big step. It kind of it so lends itself to that kind of interpretation that if you're not careful, you, you wind up being sort of a conspiracy theorist. Now, was this, uh, was the death of uh, Ince um, perhaps a, a seed crystal or a, a, an instigator for expiration date? Because it sounds a lot like what happened to the parent of a couple of our main characters. Yeah, I'd have been thinking of uh, Ince and... Um, Oh, some of the old fixers like, um, oh, Lennox, Eddie Lennox, uh, who was kept busy by the studios scrambling around to put out publicity fires. And, of course, it was all total secret um, and therefore surrounded by clusters of conflicting rumors and legends. Um so, yeah, I, I definitely um, was thinking of that sort of secret underworld of Los Angeles when I wrote Expiration Date, um, specifically with the uh, incidents surrounding the death of a protagonist's father. 
You wouldn't say that the ghosts that that you write about in this and and other of the uh, of the Fault Line trilogy um, are are they're not metaphorical like one. I guess they're not, they're not allegorical, but they are metaphorical in a way of the LA that you that this deep history that that fascinates you. Yeah, I would say they're um, not implausible extrapolations. Um, certainly, I mean them in the in the in the story to be simply realistic, actual events. Um, yeah, sure. That's the thing about about a Tim Powers novel is that you can just take it that way, right? I mean, you don't. You could talk about whatever we're talking about now, but but uh, they're also just kind of scary ghosts. Above all, when I'm writing, I want to trick the reader into thinking this is really happening in the real Los Angeles. It's not an alternate Los Angeles, and it's not metaphors for some sort of philosophical point I want to make. I want the events to seem to be as tangibly real as um, as news that you'd read in the paper. Of course, it's news that gets suppressed, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I want always to emphasize that uh, this is really happening in real places to real people. And um, there's ghosts, but what are you going to do? There they are. Uh, deal with them. And you have to deal with them by one of the things the characters do uh, is is they often sort of slowly learn the rules. Um, the, the ghosts in expiration date can be trapped. They can be repelled. Um, and one thing that works is is palindromes, for instance. Um, can you tell us I about know. some of the rules and the uh, the the um, the ghost traps that it's really fun, but it's also kind of cool. Um, yeah. Ghosts in that book, um, they're not the person they were a ghost of, uh, GK Chesterton said somewhere that if you're being haunted by the ghost of your uncle George, your uncle George doesn't know anything about it. He's in heaven or hell, but in dying, he cast this sort of, uh, semi-aware, semi-sentient uh, shell, like a cast-off snakeskin, which is animate. And uh, the ghosts are not very bright. Um, they consist more of uh, R-O-M than R-A-M. Um, and because they're not very bright, they can be sort of trapped, hypnotized, stymied in the way I've read that chickens can be hypnotized if you draw a line in the dirt and make them look at it. They can't stop looking at it because there's just something so amazing about a straight line. Uh, similarly, ghosts, I say, uh, can be uh, endlessly held by the fact of a palindrome, something like sit on a potato pan, Otis, because it reads the same backwards as forwards, and they just sort of keep banging back and forth from the beginning to the end of the sentence, and they're not able to break their attention free of it. Uh, and so if you want to capture ghosts, you set up palindromes in remote sort of freeway islands that they tend to cluster in, and after a while you can go back with a little bottle and scoop them into the bottle. 
And having done that, you uh, can sell them to a particular sort of covert elite L.A. aficionados who mix them with uh, nitrous oxide and inhale them and get a brief rush, which consists of, in reverse, all the ghost's memories in sort of one 30-second flash you experience uh, all the high points of that ghost's life and to some extent derive what little bit of vitality there still was in that ghost, you get to ingest that into yourself. It kind of peps you up. And people do get addicted to inhaling ghosts, and so there's a covert uh, black market traffic in bottled ghosts. And it can, like most addictions, it can really, in the end, uh, lead to your your own destruction, right? Yeah, if you inhale too many of them, they kind of uh, ball up inside your mind, and um, in their little fragmentary identities can kind of clump up and um, crowd out your actual inborn native identity uh so yeah if if you uh really and there's a character in the in the book that 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 happens to um we'll maybe let's continue for a moment talking about the ghosts um they can also accrue uh, one of the other cool things was the the, the incomplete jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> that was another. Hey, that's like. another good thing. Sure, they'll sit forever looking at an incomplete jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> yeah. They reminded me sort of of uh, of um, poor addled people, um, you know, like in an insane asylum or something. The way that you might uh, get their attention with something that just seems to make sense but doesn't really. In, in our world. Yeah, in fact, I said that um, some of the crazier homeless people you see on the streets of L.A. might be ghosts who have hung around and managed to sort of accrue bits of litter enough to form uh, a plausible body, and they just mumble idiot memories from like 1955 or something um, and eat rocks and bottle caps and stuff. Uh, they can't actually eat organic stuff anymore, but they still have the reflex of wanting to eat. And so they wind up, you can trap them in fact by laying out pebbles that look like, for example, candy. Uh, and they will, cluster up and uh, start popping those things into their mouths. Uh, they can be a little bit dangerous, especially um, if you have no idea that, that that's what they are. Yeah, because uh, they are, after all, working on a very sort of short-circuited, minimal uh, intelligence, and you, you know, uh, you don't know what might trigger some uh, antique rage or something 
Um, the whole thing started, really, uh, when I read that Thomas Edison's last breath was captured in a test tube. In fact, I've seen it. It's, it's in a, a museum in um, Michigan. You're kidding. It really exists, huh? I mean, that, that's the, that's the uh, MacGuffin in the book. Yeah, yeah. Henry Ford was a friend of the family, and when Edison was on his deathbed, Ford told Edison's children, uh, this may sound weird, but could you guys go in there and when he, you know, whew, exhales his last breath, could you um, catch it? Here's a test tube. Here's a cork. Could you guys catch it for me? It'd be a, uh, a, a remembrance, uh, you know, a, a sentimental token. And so his uh, Edison's children evidently did do that. And uh, as I say, you can see the uh, test tube itself at uh, in Dearborn, Michigan. Well, geez, Louise, that's cool. Um, so, well, let's talk about the characters a bit. And and first of all, there's a young boy who decides he's going to break this bust of uh, palace, but actually it's Dante, um, to get his parents' attention. His name is Cootie Parganus. Um, and, and what, who is Cootie? What does he find in that statue? Well, uh, Cootie, whose full name is Kuthumi Parganas, he was named after, uh, a Mahatma in the mysticism of, um, sort of, um, the metaphysics, um, it kind of started by Madame Blavatsky around the turn of the century. Uh, his parents, Cootie's parents, uh, had been devotees of this splinter of Eastern mysticism and named him after this mystical Mahatma figure um, and expected him to be a vegetarian and adhere to a bunch of uh, inconvenient rules for a sort of enlightened master and Cootie himself doesn't think much of this because he's living in modern Southern California and likes rock music and Big Macs and stuff and he decides to run away and he decides to break the bust of Dante which his parents apparently worship and inside it he finds the real test tube uh, containing Edison's last breath the one in Michigan uh, was switched in it's a fake and Cootie inadvertently opens it and inhales Edison's ghost, who then, uh, for the rest of the book, is sort of a, um, a crazy but protective spirit inhabiting Cootie's head. Uh, and he needs a protective spirit guiding him because a bunch of the bad ghost addicts are aware of the sort of psychic earthquake that happened when Edison's ghost was freed from the test tube, and they all want to consume it because it would be a very uh, vitalizing, strengthening ghost. It would be the absolute um, Mouton Rothschild uh, vintage uh, uh best ever ghost to inhale. Uh, unfortunately, in order to inhale Edison, now that he's in Cootie's head, it would involve killing Cootie. So Cootie finds himself pursued all over a bunch of sort of low-life areas of Los Angeles by these bad guys. Um, uh, 
somewhat efficiently protected and guided by Edison, though Edison's ghost isn't the most reliable uh, mentor. And Edison is, I mean, he's got, as it were, self-interest in that he doesn't want to, that, that he still has a certain sort of will when he's in a child, but in an adult, you, the ghosts don't have a chance. Yeah, yeah. Edison would ideally like to get to the ocean and properly dissolve, um, sort of like uh, the Dixie Flatline in William Gibson's Neuromancer, um, sort of comprehends that what he is should not exist and uh, would rather dissolve into oblivion than be incorporated into the brain of some sort of malignant ghost addict. Um, but in the meantime, he has to uh, keep Cootie out of the clutches of the predatory ghost addicts. And Cootie's also a very, um, he's, he's um, been raised in a weird way that's sort of half in a cult and half as a Southern California kid. His parents have been distant. He's, um, he's, he's a weird kid himself. Yeah, yeah. He's not uh, on his own very equipped to deal with uh, the underside of Los Angeles. And neither really is Thomas Edison, but together they kind of blunder their way through until they meet um, our Sullivan. two... Yeah, uh, Pete Sullivan and Angelica Elizalde, who are fugitives uh, in their own situations from various disasters of an occult nature. And um, even though they are kind of on the run themselves, uh, hiding out from their own troubled pasts, um, their troubled pasts do give them... Uh, degrees of expertise in dealing with supernatural problems, which makes them uniquely uh, situated to rescue poor Cootie when he needs rescuing. And so the, the three of them, with Edison as sort of a ghostly avuncular figure, um, do form a kind of <laughs> screwed-up family. Yeah, tell us a little about um, and and there there is a particular villain or two that are after them. But tell us a little more about Pete. Um, he and his twin sister have an odd ability to uh, sometimes live on what they call bar time. They did um, right. What is bar time, and and why why did he have this weird connection with his sister, and um, and didn't <laughs> how did it go south? Well, uh, uh, Pete Sullivan and his sister Suki, uh, a nickname from uh, um, Bertolt Brecht song, um, were orphaned as children uh, when their father was, it turns out, killed, though it was meant to look like an accident. And together they um, spent some years in this or that foster home or facility and wound up being very close. And uh, the sort of um, psychic shock that they uh, experienced with their father's death um, and their mutual, almost telepathic link has um, 
Yeah, given them the ability to perceive what they call bar time, which is, I think everybody sort of gets it. It's that, um, it's the way you become aware of a sound like a refrigerator motor in the instant before it stops. Uh, or you become aware of, uh, you sort of react to a loud noise an instant before it really happens, uh, which I swear does occur. <laughs> Um, and what it is for them is they are able to um, anticipate by a few seconds the things that are about to happen. And this is useful, for example, if the car ahead of you suddenly puts on his brakes. Um, and, of course, in certain crises, it could be a, a life-saving advantage. Um, and... Their relationship, because of their weird childhood, has been both so close as to almost constitute identity, but at the same time uh, fraught with a kind of reciprocal resentment. Um, they both need each other and wish they didn't need each other. And... Uh, yeah, I can say this. It occurs early, very early in the book. Um, Suki becomes aware that their old employer, a uh, small-time movie producer named Loretta Delarava, uh, she becomes aware that they are that Delarava is after them again, and rather than confront the traumas incipient in. Uh, the death of their father at Larava's hands and everything, Suki chooses to commit suicide. But before she kills herself, she calls Pete, her brother, and warns him that Delarava is after them again, and uh, her means of dealing with that is to kill herself, but she suggests that Pete take some measures of his own. Yeah, now... There is that Loretta Della Rava has got to be the uh, the quintessential creepy uh, creepy uh, sort of Hollywood um, uh, yeah. fixture of, of old. She's really creepy. She hired uh, Pete and Suki when they were just out of college to help her trap and do nasty things to to ghosts. It seems even though she, she is also a sort of producer of motion pictures, right? Right, yeah. She, in fact, largely uses her job as a uh, producer of documentaries and things like that to find old uh, sort of dormant ghosts in old buildings that she can snort up. And Suki and Pete, when they're working together, even though they're competent uh, technicians with lighting, um their main advantage for her is that when they're working together, they kind of light up nearby ghosts uh, so that Delarava can become aware of them. Um, and, of course, the one ghost that they would be very efficient at lighting up and which Delarava would very much like to consume or at least eliminate from the picture is the ghost of their father, for whose death... Delarava was responsible, and uh, and so she would like to get them together again, uh, so that she could once and for all conjure out of the sea that 
a personally important ghost and consume it and therefore sort of short-circuit any possibility of retribution that she might be in danger of. Yeah, there's, um, and she's got a, a bit of an organization behind her that, um, yeah, um, she, um, largely because of her, uh, job as a producer has a bunch of people who, uh, often on work for her and a couple of, uh, full-time assistants, um, one of whom is, uh, necessarily pretty schizophrenic, um, He's probably good at whatever ostensible job he has, but his main value to her is, like Pete and Suki, his um, ability to sense things that a normal person wouldn't sense. Are we talking? Are we talking about Sherman Oaks? The no, um, her her Somebody, funny yeah. little assistant Benny, I believe his name was. Right. Yeah. But Sherman Oaks is also <laughs> hey, it, he's kind of the quintessential um, crazy uh, dealer addict. Yes, he's been ghosts. an addict so long that he hardly has any identity of his own at all anymore. His own identity, whatever it originally may have been, shows up only in kind of unconnected, unrecognized fragments bubbling up in his head. Uh, and he simply lives to consume more ghosts. Um, he at first seems only to be a sort of contemporary ghost sniffer, but eventually proves to be quite a bit older than anyone would have suspected. And it turns out that he has been sustaining his patchwork, mosaic, hijacked life um, for more than 100 years, though he has virtually no awareness of that himself. And he has a long-standing uh, quarrel, uh, fight with Edison, which at the time of Edison's death had been unresolved, but looks like being resolved now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, he takes... He took the name Sherman Oaks just because the area of Los Angeles called Sherman Oaks was where he happened to be when he came into his latest period of uh, self-awareness. So you start off a lot of the chapters uh, with with epigrams from the Alice books, the Lewis Carroll um, How does this connect up with the story? I mean, it's pretty obvious. When, when I'm putting a book together, I have I adopt a kind of paranoid schizophrenic squint just uh, while I'm working. Um, and with that squint, everything looks like a clue to the story at hand. And I happened to read the Alice books, and it occurred to me, this is, this could be read as the account of someone's experiences after death, the kind of surrealistic distortions and uh, vaguely significant-sounding uh, gibberish. Um, 
And um, somebody said, some famous computer expert, I wish I remembered his name, said that uh, the Alice books are the perfect books on understanding computer programming for the layman because the Alice books are the perfect book for the layman on any subject. And so I decided they are the perfect book to explain what happens after death. Um, and being so intrinsically enigmatic, uh, those books provided lots of ha, um, important-sounding, mysterious quotes for the chapters, which I like to think uh, cast a sort of vindicating authoritative light on the events in the chapters. Some of the, I mean, it seems like some of the Alice logic, you know, creeps into uh, expiration date as well, that there, there are, they are clues to what. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They really, uh, (laughs) for, for the protagonists of the book, uh, the Alice books would have been the best books for the layman on, on how to deal with their situations. Sort of the equivalent of that handbook for the recently deceased in Beetlejuice. And Earthquake Weather will be out in the fall, by the way. We'll be having that as a as a excellent trade paperback as well. Yeah. What was the what was the genesis and history of expiration date? Do you recall who was the original editor on this? Uh, the original editor was um, Chris Miller at HarperCollins, and um, she was actually very valuable, as editors you hope always are, um, in that she read it and said, this needs clarification. We need to see this character again sometime between Chapter 2 and Chapter 20, or we won't remember who he is when he shows up again. Uh, things like that. And... Um, Oh, I could go on and on about how crucial editors are for writers. Um, And then uh, she and several other editors left HarperCollins, and uh, my agent and I wound up buying the book back, of all things, and selling it to Tor, where it was then edited again by uh, Beth Meacham, who, again, is a very good, insightful editor, full of great fix-up suggestions. Um, so it uh, it had kind of a, a long road altogether. Cool. The um, what what about the, your idea and uh, and where this sort of did this just uh, sort of come after last call or what was the? Yeah, it came after last call. I wanted. Uh, uh, in, a, in a way, last call was spring, expiration date is autumn, and earthquake weather is winter. Um, I didn't do summer because I figured that would just be snow cones in the park. Um, but I wanted to have, uh, having established last call, I wanted to have an independent uh, set of characters and events that would converge with the events of last call, finally, in the third book. Um, and what really sparked expiration date was me reading that 
Edison's last brass was captured in a test tube, which is eccentric, and then that Edison published a letter in Scientific American, which I quote in expiration date, uh, saying that his new invention, having done the phonograph and the light bulb, his new invention was going to be a telephone with which you could talk to dead people. And I thought, okay, that'll do. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's 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 check out Edison. So I read several biographies of him, and if you are reading a biography with my sort of paranoid schizophrenic squint, you can't help but find lots and lots of evidence. And it turned out that Edison's life was full of all kinds of weird stuff, not just the test tube and the phone to talk to dead people with. Um, just eccentric things like uh, he would uh, force his children to climb a pole in the yard by throwing firecrackers at their feet. Um, when he was a small child, he was off playing with a little local friend, and they were playing in a creek, and his friend dived into the creek and never surfaced. And after half hour or so, Edison decided he wasn't going to surface and went home and had dinner and went to bed. And he was waked up in the middle of the night by his parents shaking him, saying, do you know where little Bobby is? He never came home. And Edison says, yeah, yeah, he, uh, he dove into the creek and uh, never came up again, so I came home. And everybody was really horrified at his apparent callousness. Um, and all these things together, and there are dozens of odd things about Edison, um, if you say, what is the supernatural fact omitted from these biographies that would make sense of all these otherwise inexplicable features of his life, I came up with the whole ghost-inhaling idea. Yeah. That I mean that that weird incident with the friend um, really stuck with me, and you you use it pretty incredibly effectively in the book. Um, and I so much so I was like, can that be true? Because I didn't, I you know, I haven't read a Edison biography to that extent. Um, but it is right. I mean, he just walked away from the kid. Yeah, he, and of course Edison was only five or six, so you can't really assign. Uh the kind of moral blame you would uh, assign to an adult, but it's still damn weird. <laughs> uh, and, and And is indicative of some kind of, not to be unkind to a five-year-old, but some kind of gap <laughs> in, in his uh, psyche. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, I, I always think you could almost read the biography of anybody if it was detailed enough. And if you're looking for clues to supernatural backstories imaginatively enough, you'll find plenty. And that is basically something that Tim Powers does a lot. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes say it saves me the necessity of imagination. Um, instead of making things up, I simply go looking for things that are already there. Well, uh, perhaps you were born with the perception that some of us uh, wish we had, that, and we, but we can get it through reading reading the books. So what, what are you working on uh, at present? 
right now I am in the middle of um, a sequel to Alternate Roots, which Bain is publishing in August. And uh, yeah, and uh, it was Alternate Roots was a book that lent itself to um, continuation. Um, at the end of it, you think, yes, that's all very well, but what did they go do then? After all that, and I thought, yeah, what what did they all go do after that? And it turns out that they uh, found themselves in fresh trouble. Um, and it involves uh, alternate routes took place in good old mysterious Los Angeles, and so does this one. And it's um, it's based on something having to do with Cecil B. DeMille in the uh, 1920s. It's uh, there's a lot of similar logic to uh, to the ghosts in expiration date and and alternate routes or routes do you feel that they're connected uh other than just that you wrote them both well i I don't think they're connected in the sense of they to happen in the same story continuity you know um but i think they're related just in that um in the way i picture ghosts working this is on Stranger Tides, sort of uh, your your uh, wonderful, wonderful book about the, the Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, the same sort of ghost logic sort of works there as well. Yeah. Well, you know, you read enough about accounts of actual ghosts um, and, you know, the results people get from divination and Ouija boards and accounts of apparitions with ectoplasm and stuff, and you do get a kind of a consistent picture of what they, quote, are, unquote. Um, And it fits with that Chesterton quote. Uh, They seem to be kind of half-witted but dangerous uh, little revenants uh kind of uh, bumbling around uh helplessly reenacting uh their past and people can get mixed up with them in 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 very um very nasty ways yeah yeah they don't want uh, yeah they're they're not um safe toys uh like I wouldn't have a Ouija board in my house <laughs> You've probably read too much Tim Powers. I bet I've read all of it. <laughs> well, the book is Expiration Date by Tim Powers. It's at booksellers everywhere. Um, it's a wonderful, uh, evocative uh, book set in L.A. Tim, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Tony. To talk about it's been this. fun. Yeah, it's been a good okay. time. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. 
To this end, master trader Sean Yoskalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. They were very clever. They slipped the blades of their knives between the rim of the bowl and the floor and levered it until they had gained enough space for one to grip what he could not see. Patty heard the other drop back and had no doubt what she would find when the bowl was flipped over and she became visible. One man, spinning out of striking distance, even as she came to her feet, the other well back with gun aimed. They might, Patty thought, watching the intruding fingers work under the bowl, be willing to wound her, though she thought they would not wish to anger the person who had punished Elphazic so memorably by disobeying orders and by killing her. Certainly, if they wished to use her as a stick to beat father with, they would need her to be alive. The fingers gripped the edge of the bowl. She tensed, heard a hard intake of breath, saw boots in the gap between the rim and the floor, then knees, belt, jacket. She snapped to her feet as the bowl hit the floor behind her, ringing. The man who had thrown it was spinning away. The man holding the gun on her was shouting, Stand and raise your hands! And two more people came running through the broken door. The man who had thrown the bowl shouted at the newcomers to hold. The other man's gun wavered, and Paddy dove down and forward, meaning to bring the gunman down and take his weapon for her own. She surprised him, and he was off balance due to the arrival of his comrades. So he did fall, but only to his knees, her arm trapped beneath him and his gun still in hand. He swung it downward and pinned. She rolled desperately, and the blow landed on her shoulder instead of her head. Pain exploded. The gun was rising again. Fear, fear rushed upon her with its wings of glass, and she pushed with every ounce of will she possessed. Something shattered loudly. Someone screamed, and the weight was gone from her arm. She pushed again, following the thrumming of fear, seeing stone before her, and welcomed darkness beyond an open door. Tarona Rusk was no willing client. She fought him, and even though heel space gave him advantage, she hurt him. Worse, she delayed him, and time was the coin he could least afford to spend. Finally, knowing that he could not spend the energy, 
He snatched her close and held her quiescent within his will, and made those repairs and adjustments that he could, feeling his focus soften, and the connection to his bleeding, battered body grow dangerously thin. She whimpered in his grasp. He had hurt her, and that was his shame, but necessity. He was very near his goal now, and the most important part of this healing. Staggering and unfit, he pressed on, drawing upon the virtue of heal space to focus his wavering attention on a small, glowing pearl nestled in an area of densest scarring. He slashed at the old wounds, no gentler than her previous tormentors, giving the pearl room to expand, to warm, to, at last, take fire, cauterizing the new wounds he had inflicted, turning the old wounds to ash. She screamed then. Joined as they were, he felt all of her anguish. And, an instant later, all of her joy. Captain, Dilnem murmured. Priscilla looked to him. Third mate? Report from maintenance, Captain. Automatics in Trader Yosgalen's cabin reported an unusual amount of dust. Maintenance sent someone. There was a pile of glass dust on the table next to the bunk. No idea how it got there. The worker swept it and changed the filters. Glass dust on the table next to the bowl. Priscilla remembered it a fragile-looking thing with a design that evoked wind and water. It was supposed to have been unbreakable, that bowl. Yet sometimes, when Adramliza first felt the fullness of her power, sometimes things broke. Priscilla took a careful breath and reached out into the ether. Heel space burned away around them. He opened his eyes to the reality of the chair and his injuries, and Vanner lying dead on the floor. A cool hand pressed lightly over the dreadful wounds on his arm, leeching some of the fire. You are a fool, little healer, said Torona Rusk. He managed to raise his head and meet her eyes. They were blue. That was strange, he had thought them black. Yes, he answered her. Very much so. She smiled, a twisted thing, half sweet and half savage. I believe you have accomplished what you set yourself to do. My question would be, why? I am a healer, he whispered, and closed his eyes, the weight of the light being too much now to bear. No, what is this? You force me to bear the burden of life while you stealthily steal away? That will not do. I do not allow it. Energy flowed into him, sparkling dark and glittering light. He opened his eyes and lifted his head. Do not drain yourself, he warned her. You have nothing but your own resources to draw upon now. For which I thank you a thousand times, but no. I will husband myself, never fear it. I have too much to do to spend unwisely. The flow of energy slowed to a trickle. He felt his bonds loosen and drop away. 
He glanced down at his arm, saw the wounds had closed and the bleeding had stopped. A healing for a healing. Balance. Now, she said briskly, you must see to your daughter. You have left her too long alone. My daughter is being cared for by a friend. Is it so? Perhaps this explains why my colleagues have not yet returned. On your feet, little healer. I will support you so far as the hotel. Sean's essence had faded to a shadow, and Priscilla despaired. She had tried to reach him and found blocks and warnaways. He did not want her in this, whatever it was. She could only sit and watch and grieve. Just when it seemed that he could not sustain himself, he began to grow firmer. Priscilla caught her breath, seeing the glitter of another's power feeding him, supporting him, and finally withdrawing. She let go the breath she had been holding. He was much improved, though by no means entirely well. Certainly, he was well enough to be taken up by the security team she had asked the portmaster to send to him. The shuttle, with Lena aboard, was already on its way down to the planet's surface. Lena would set matters right and hold him when he found that his daughter was gone, leaving not so much as a scratch upon the ether to mark her passing. And that was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to the podcast theme composer, Ruth Jukowitz. And a perfectly filthy sky shanty for Tim Powers' offer of expiration date. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And as always, keep reaching for the stars.